Welcome to All Things Green. I'm Shelby, here with my co-host Anton to discuss a variety of topics from across the sustainability universe. Anton, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Shelby? I'm a little sunburned. I spent (laughs) a lot of time in the sun over the weekend, um, which was lovely, but now I have to wear t-shirts to cover my very red shoulders, so yeah. you'll never you'll never know. Is it like a peeling kind, or is it just really painful, or where, what stage are we at? Right now, it's just painful. Okay. Um, but it got me thinking, uh, first of all, I should have worn sunscreen. I'm a public health professional. I should have known better. There were some extenuating circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> but it reminded me of, um, have you ever heard of reef-safe sunscreen? No. So one time I went to Mexico with my family and we went uh, scuba diving. No, not scuba diving. That requires a license. I went snorkeling. Mm. Um, and we did that in the cenotes and we also did it just in the ocean. And before we got in the water, our guides made us go take showers because they said that we needed to get the sunscreen off our bodies. Oh, really? To which my instinct was, excuse me. I am extremely pale. I need sunscreen. But actually, it was because a lot of sunscreens, especially produced in the U.S., are not safe for sea life. Oh, they have like something in it that kills the reefs? Exactly. And so they made us put on a special sunscreen that was safe to swim in, safe for the environment. We're safe to swim in regular sunscreen. Um, But it made me think about it. And so now anytime I go to the store, you can actually see more and more common sunscreens will label themselves reef safe um, so you can get something that you don't have to worry about impacting the environment in the same way as a traditional sunscreen that's really interesting i want to take care of lake Erie. i wonder if maybe the reef safe is even just better for the environment in general something i'd like to research more maybe yeah maybe we could do a full full full-on segment about it and do more education but i just Wanted to bring it up because yeah. I know that I need to go buy some sunscreen for the summer and I'm going to look for something with that reef safe seal. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I care about the fish and the reefs, uh, which is important because today we're going to talk about animals. I'm so excited to get into it. All about animals. Will you tell me before we get started what your favorite animal is? Ooh, it used to be like silverback gorilla. Or well, I guess silverbacks are just like the males, but mm-hmm. yeah, probably just gorillas in general. That's good. I yeah. think they're like, yeah, really smart and like just powerful animals. I can see that for you. Can't really be smart and powerful. That's, That's like what people say about duo. you. Yeah, no. They don't <laughs> say that about me. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you my favorite animal yet because we're going to get into it later. But yeah, could, we, spoil it. could we start with sea turtles? Yeah. I think my mom might say that sea turtles are one of her favorite animals. My sister would probably say sea turtles. Yeah. yeah. I love a good sea turtle. Don't get me wrong. There's not an animal today that we're not going to, that we'll talk about that I don't love, but it's not my favorite. Okay. Sea turtles, it turns out, are really important. So I'm getting a lot of information today from the AP, but also some work out of the Leatherback Project and a couple of resources um, that give me a few more definitions, including from National Geographic. So let's talk about leatherback sea turtles um, and their importance as a keystone species. Sound good? Yeah. What is a keystone species? That's a really good question. I'm so glad you asked. So a keystone species, according to National Geographic, is a species that's so important for an ecosystem that if you removed it from an ecosystem, it would drastically change that system. Does that sound good? Yeah. Uh, We talk a lot in in previous conversations that we've had about removing one piece of the system and how it affects the rest of the system. We could be talking about housing, society, but 
we talk about it specifically in terms of animals a lot. Yeah, the ecosystem. Yeah, right. we talked about salmon and their relationship with water and bears and people and everything. So a keystone species is any species where if you remove it, creates this drastic change. And they can be any kind of animal. It's often a predator, which makes sense because a predator at the top of the food chain, when you were little, do you ever have to make those sort of food webs or food chains? That was honestly my favorite part of science class. <laughs> I love I love the animals. I mean, that was, that was a lot of fun. Yes. And so you'd put your predator up top and then you could see how it branched out into all of these other animals yeah. and plants and fungi and everything, mm -hmm. but it kind of led up. So that would make sense, right? That a predator would be this keystone species. Could you think of like an example of something that would count in that? Uh, like wolves, maybe. Totally. And like Yellowstone, right? Yes. The elk populations are booming right now. Absolutely. And they are probably over eating or over harvesting maybe certain plants or something. So that's a great example. They're trying to trying to bring wolves back to kill the elk. Yes, that's right. <laughs> which sounds bad, you know. Oh, elk, those are cool. And part of the reason that humans actually killed off wolves or really really lowered their population numbers in the first place was this fear over elk populations. Aren't they cool? Won't they bring people to our national parks to look at them? But as you mentioned, yeah. you have more herbivores, they're eating more plants. It's just messing with that really delicate cycle. Right. So fewer wolves, more elks, bad news. So we're trying to reintroduce wolves. They're an yeah. apex predator and they're a keystone species. Um, but it doesn't have to be a predator. Herbivores can also be keystone species. So an example of an herbivore keystone species might be something like, um, well, actually, you gave an example about bison. Yeah. I want you to talk about that again the really briefly. The buffalo running clover. Yes, yeah. yes. So like in Ohio, we have that threatened clover species, the buffalo running clover. And it's because we don't have bison anymore to like disturb the clover, to put their little hoofs in or big hoofs in and yeah. munch on the clover. And so the population is actually suffering without that disturbance. Yeah, totally. That's a great example of an herbivore that's also a keystone species. And then finally, we have mutualists. So essentially two species that kind of help each other. And then those two things end up being a part of this larger ecosystem. So right. think about pollinators, bees that are landing on flowers, and they're getting a benefit from that because they get the nectar, they feed yeah. on that. But then also they travel around with that pollen and it flies off in every direction. And so then we pollinate other plants. And so yeah. those are mutualists. They're working together. And then because the bees are helping the flowers, anything that's eating those plants is also benefiting. So again, keystone, because everything relies on this mutual relationship. And I think you had an Ohio example for that too. Well, yeah, like oak trees. Yes. Uh, I mean, they, they do so much for mammals, for birds for uh, insects and uh, just the ecology of the soil, like they do so much for the environment. So yeah, oak trees. Well, we've gone a far cry away from leatherback sea turtles, <laughs> but I thought it was important to establish. It like, was worth it. Thank you. <laughs> like what a keystone species yeah. is. We talk about this all the time without using that language. And as much as possible, I want us to be learning more about how to yeah. talk about these things. So leatherback sea turtles are a keystone species they're a predator and they eat jellyfish mm -hmm. jellyfish of all kinds and that's important because jellyfish mostly eat juvenile fish of other varieties now that makes sense and none of that is bad but if there are fewer sea turtles to eat the jellyfish then there are too many jellyfish eating these baby fish before they reach maturity. So then those fish can't even have babies and we start to lose populations yeah. for these other fish. 
I've actually heard that jellyfish have actually been booming in population lately, so. Yeah, doesn't make going to the beach all that fun when you got too many jellyfish stinging <laughs> yeah, you. Right. So it's important, all of those pieces, we don't want to get rid of jellyfish, the answer is not that, but the answer is to have this delicate balance maintained. So leatherback sea turtles, super important, but like most animals, they're being impacted by climate change. They spend their life in the water, except for, of course, when they go lay their eggs on the beach. So it's important for them to have passage onto beaches, yeah. there are beaches available for them to be able to lay their eggs. These animals live a really long time, so it takes a long time to build back up the population. They don't reach sexual maturity until they're like 9 to 20 years old. Wow. So there's a long time in their life before they can even go lay eggs. That's you crazy. Yeah. You can't kind of bring it back overnight. So. There's this group called the Leatherback Project, and their work is to try to conserve specifically leatherback sea turtles. And they've been doing so much advocacy, um, not them on their own, but they were a huge player mm -hmm. in making Panama recently pass a law that gives sea turtles rights, just like a person has rights. That's cool. That's like awesome. Yeah. We talked about this a little with the salmon right, the story salmon that you story. told. Yes. And so this is very similar. Do you want to remind us really quickly what we learned in the salmon story? Yeah, that was over in uh, Seattle, Washington, I believe it was. Yes. And uh, basically a tribe, uh, indigenous tribe, sued the city of Seattle and said, hey, these salmon have rights. They have the right to thrive and they affect the rest of nature. They affect the bears and the people who are trying to fish. And so... Uh, Animals have rights too. Absolutely. And we gotta make sure that that's codified. Yeah, so Seattle did it as a city, and this is a whole nation that has said, we care about these animals, we think that they're important. It's also partially because it's important for their tourism industry. A lot of people come so yeah. they can see the migration of these sea turtles. It's very, they're very cute. Yeah. <laughs> and so now they have this protection. That means that there's no interstate commerce or international commerce that can rely on the sale of turtles, their parts or their eggs. Mm. Um, and it also means that developers have to think about the uh, like environment and where sea turtles can lay their eggs before they create new development. Um, still kind of working on the enforcement. This is really new, but I think it's a really good step in the right direction. That's an awesome step. I love the idea of making sure that developers are being mindful of like those spots where animals maybe migrate to or nest or that's all that's all important that it's yeah. close to home for me yeah it's just a one more push forward in the right to nature movement yeah. rights of nature i should say yeah. so we covered a creature of the water you want to move on to creatures of the air yeah just like avatar oh great yeah yeah <laughs> except without the fire not today <laughs> now no, we'll talk about fire another time but uh yeah, the Center for Biological Diversity actually talked a little bit about how monarch populations are dropping. They actually decreased 22% in population mm, since last year. I like butterflies. Yeah. Did you ever like raise monarchs or anything like that in your classroom as a kid? I did, yeah. yeah. When I was in second grade, we had this, this classroom project where we all yeah. raised butterflies together. So they started as little caterpillars and, and they made their little chrysalis and then they all turned into butterflies, except yeah. for one. It was a little traumatic. Yeah. Uh, it never came out of its chrysalis. Yeah. I still remember her. Well, you but, want to know it's more traumatic? Yeah. Not getting to raise butterflies in the first place. So. I'm sorry. I had that privilege as a yeah. child to be able yes. to raise butterflies. Yeah, butterfly privilege. Well, <laughs> anyways, hopping back into it. Uh, monarchs are continuing to be highly vulnerable to extinction, and that's for a number of reasons. That's like pesticides, 
climate change, habitat destruction, even just like getting killed on like highways and stuff as they're migrating. Very uh, sad, right? Yeah. Can you just imagine a splatted monarch on your windshield? Oh, That'd that's be the worst. I know, that is the worst. Um, no, I meant it was the worst that you told me that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it happens. It happens. Um, what I would normally tell people before reading this article by uh, the Center for Biological Diversity is go plant your milkweed. We need more habitat connection, and we should still do that. Uh, this organization is actually arguing, though, that we need to take some more drastic measures in ensuring that their habitat is protected. Um, maybe these big fields for milkweed or their winter spots down in Mexico need to have higher protections. Uh, otherwise, even if we're planting our milkweed, we're not going to be making a substantial difference in the butterfly population. Isn't that sad? It's really sad. And is that, you talked about monarchs, is that just monarchs or are we not going to see all sorts of different species of butterflies thriving? Well, there are actually a few other endangered species of uh, butterfly in Ohio. Uh, Luckily, these three butterflies, they all kind of uh, use the same host plant. And to, to give you a little scoop on what host plants are, these are like the exclusive plants that butterflies will lay their eggs on. Mm. So people already know milkweed. Milkweed's super popular. Monarchs need milkweed to reproduce. Uh, there is actually a flower called wild blue lupine, and it kind of grows in like the Toledo area. It's a very beautiful, almost like indigo, purplish, bluish hue and uh, the frosted elfin the carner blue and the perseus dusky wing they're all endangered butterflies that need wild lupine and they are all endangered they're mm. still struggling uh, researchers and experts are still struggling to try and maintain populations in ohio so kind of sad um, i'm not sure if wild lupine would thrive in your uh, neck of the woods or in cleveland i mean mm -hmm. but uh, some something that maybe policy can accomplish to protect our, our butterfly species yeah, and so right now, I think you told me that butterflies are endangered. Is that an official, like, legally endangered, or just we know that they're declining? We know that they're declining. Um, some butterflies are declared endangered by states. Um, other butterflies, like the monarch, people are starting to push for, like, a federal um, endangered status. Um, so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they actually have till 2024 to make a final listing determination for monarch butterflies if they're going to be considered endangered or not. Mm. Um, and so what I would say is I wonder if there's like some type of action item that we can give our viewers or listeners. Um, maybe we'll put something down in the show notes. Maybe we can find a petition or um, even just make phone calls to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and say, hey, we care about our monarchs. Let's try and work on some policies, you know, make create some dialogue with our government. I'm pro-monarch all the way. Yeah, me too. Not in terms of royalty, but definitely in terms of butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Thank you. Yeah. So anyways, that's all I got for you for our air segment. Thank so, you. I think we talked about water, air. Are we going down to earth now? We are. <laughs> and I'm going to be totally honest. This section is so selfish of me because I mostly just wanted to talk about my favorite animal and make a bunch of people listen to it. Are you okay with that? I mean, I, I subject you to the pawpaw talk pretty much every episode, so I think it's only fair. True. We'll get back to pawpaws. Um, I love chipmunks. I love squirrels of all kinds, and I want to be really clear at the beginning that a chipmunk is a squirrel. Yeah. Um, it's a ground squirrel to be exact, <laughs> as are prairie dogs and groundhogs. They're yeah. all part of that squirrel family. Linking in the show notes a whole book called Squirrels of the World that I got as a gift that I just love. There are so many squirrels that you would never know are actual squirrels. Um, but I'm interested specifically in chipmunks today because they are relevant in the 
conversation around climate change. Uh, and that's because they hibernate. And so hibernating animals are being impacted by climate change. Yeah. I think to understand this, we have to talk about the fact that there are two different kinds of hibernators. There are facultative hibernators and obligatory hibernators. So facultative hibernators are responding to environmental cues that tell them when it's time to go to sleep and when it's time to wake up. Okay. That could be things like snow, that could be temperature, sunshine, even their own hunger cues. Okay. And a chipmunk would count in that facultative category. Yeah. They're also obligatory animals, obligatory hibernators, and those are animals that are going to go go hibernate and come back regardless of any of those environmental cues. So, rain or shine, their date hits and they're going to sleep. So, I'm sure there are things to worry about in those obligatory hibernators in the sense that the world is all connected. And Yeah. Oh, I bet. Yeah. But today I specifically want to talk about those facultative hibernators yeah. and the environmental cues that they get or don't get that tell them when they should hibernate and when they should come back yeah. into activity. I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I'm seeing chipmunks everywhere. Are they out in your neighborhood right now? Oh, yeah. They're at my parents' house too, um, digging little holes. Yeah. I know that some people <laughs> find them to be vermin. Um, I don't. I think they're the best. Maybe I'll feel differently when I own vermin. my own home. <laughs> yeah. They're so important, um, and they're also extremely cute. So I don't know what more people want. Um, they are a facultative hibernator, so chipmunks are reacting to the warmth of the ground mm -hmm. uh, when they decide to hibernate and then come back to activity. Mm -hmm. And they are being greatly impacted by the change of weather and season and snow, etc. Yeah. So, for example, we have had quite a few warm winters, and that means that sometimes they don't go hibernate until much later, or they come back to activity much earlier than their traditional routine would have them do. So if their hibernation period is shrunk, that means that they have more time above ground, so they're in more competition for food, and they're also becoming food yeah. for predators. Hawks and boxes and exactly yeah we already talked about keystone species i wouldn't necessarily call a chipmunk a keystone species don't quote me on that i didn't verify but um they are part of this massive food web and so if we have more of them being eaten then fewer of them are making it to hibernation we have fewer chipmunks going forward we're also probably inflating the population of species that would be eating those chipmunks because they have more access to food mm -hmm. than maybe they should in some of the leaner times of the year yeah. that they might expect the opposite can also be true if we have late season snows which has also been created by climate change you know we've had these like may and june snows up here yeah and that means that sometimes they decide to stay in hibernation for longer. And that can mean that they have less time activity-wise above ground to collect food and put fat on their bodies. So when they go back into hibernation, they're less likely to make it through the next winter. Sad. It's really sad. I don't know if I can make it through this segment. I'm just thinking about sad chipmunks now. <laughs> sad, dead chipmunks. <laughs> don't. Oh, yeah. Well, 
this is the worst climate news I've ever heard. This yeah. is more chipmunk death. Um, but really, this is important. <laughs> That's and... the worst climate news you've heard? <laughs> Selfishly, yes. I don't think you quite understand the gravity of how much I love chipmunks. Um, there was even a study over a really warm winter in California where they looked, they put little trackers on nine chipmunks, mm -hmm. and eight of them didn't hibernate at all. They just never went into hibernation, and they know from the trackers that the only one that survived is the one that hibernated. Wow. Yeah. So we're talking about this in terms of chipmunks because they're my favorite and I wanted to go there, but this could affect all sorts of hibernating creatures. Um, any creature that is a facultative hibernator is going to be impacted by the effects of longer summers, milder winters. In fact, alpine chipmunks, which are different than what we would see here in Ohio, they keep going higher and higher in the mountains, trying to find that coolness that they're used to. Yeah which means their geographic footprint is shrinking, and so is their genetic biodiversity. Yeah. Because they're all, they're kind of all in the same house party, and they're all breeding right. in the same... Yeah, it's like marrying your cousin. You don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it is exactly like that. And that's not good, because we need genetic biodiversity so they can be adaptable, and they can survive right. disease and all sorts of things. So... They're making adaptations, they're moving further north, but it's not gonna allow for that species to thrive. And as we learned today, one failing species really has this trickle effect into the success of other species. And we're a species too. So I don't wanna see chipmunks disappear from the earth, which means that I wanna keep tackling climate change. Chipmunks for, for climate change. Yeah, that sounds good to me. <laughs> That's that's all I had for you today. Uh, we could talk about chipmunks all day long, but I would start to just talk about how cute they are. But that's that's what I have for you as far as climate change goes. Yippee ki yay, Mamacita! That's an Alvin and the Chipmunks reference. As a chipmunk fan, I gotta say the representation on Alvin and the Chipmunks is really inaccurate. They are not that good of singers. No, they're not. <laughs> no. Well. We could talk about Alvin and the Chipmunks anytime, but this is all I had prepared for you about chipmunks. Do you want to tell everybody how they can keep up to date with us? Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> if you'd like to stay connected to us, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at One Planet Media. That's O-N-E-1. And if you'd like to rewatch full episodes, check out our YouTube channel, All Things Green Show. You can find all of our sources from today's episode in our show notes. We'll be back at the same time next week to bring you more news. Thank you for being part of the global sustainability movement. Bye.